Hello and welcome to another episode of Stream Wars, our thought leader series, where we learn from industry experts about the latest trends and challenges from across the convergent TV space. Hosted by Michael Beach. Today I'm joined by Troy Young. Troy is the former global head of Hearst Magazines. I first met Troy back in 2010, where he was president of one of the most innovative companies I've ever worked with, Say Media. If I needed to solve a problem around the future of media and had one phone call to make, he would be it. Please enjoy my conversation with Troy Young. All right, Troy, thanks for joining us today. No problem. All right, we'll nice start. I'm a big fan list. of your newsletter. I really, uh, I really appreciate how you make. Uh, um, it's it's just super easy to read and gets to the facts and sort of doesn't mess around. Yeah, likewise, you're uh, you're definitely raising the bar on uh, on the kind of original content, um, kind of how you write. I think I, I definitely want to start adding a little bit more uh, analysis and text to what I do. But I'm definitely a big fan of your newsletter as well. It's so funny you say that. This 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 week, I was like, what, what am I doing? I I I need to move in your direction. I need to make it more scannable. I need to be able to sort of take it and be able to paste it into a, a Twitter thread. So, uh, you know, I, I, I kind of did it this week to make a point. It's a, it's a little bit more work to, uh, to, 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 you know, stitch something together in coherent prose than just bulleting it out. But, you know, it's not clear to me that what the reader wants. It's interesting to listen to the audience a bit. Yeah, I mean, there's... Uh... Yeah, I think different times. I'm always interested on feedback I get about what content people ask about and want to go deeper on. And a lot of times it's kind of not what I would have guessed is the, um, you know, the area. Because a lot of times I do the, the kind of high level uh, data points. You know, I try to give context, but there's obviously so much that gets left on the cutting room floor. But, you know, I always get three or four questions about the same exact thing. And when I'm writing it, I would have never thought that would have been the thing that left the most for the user. Yeah. Um, well, I, I like your format and I like, I like that it's thematically connected and it's cool. Thank you. Well, yeah. I definitely want to get into uh, kind of newsletters and uh, kind of creator models here a little bit later on, but uh, kind of start off with, you know, kind of going way back, you know, what was your first job and kind of what learnings do you take away to be applied to your career? Well, there was, you know, I'm from Saskatchewan and, um, you know, kind of growing up, you, I think from about the time you were 15 or 16, you were kind of expected to have a job. And the idea was that you would pay for your own college basically. Um, so I had a bunch of crappy jobs, you know, like I was a dishwasher and did, you know, maintenance of apartments and mowed lawns and stuff like that. But my first real job was probably, uh, I was an analyst, uh, at a, a financial analyst, actually, at a, at, a, at a big telecommunications company called Nortel. And the way I landed there was, was you know, I was, I was not super directed. I, I kind of went through the last couple of years of college. I didn't really have anyone in my life to, to give me that advice. My dad had passed away, and I was, you know, kind of messing around, and I had met this guy, and he said, you know, you should come. You should come. I, had, I had a degree in economics and finance. He said, you should come and be an analyst and work with us. And uh, you know, the, 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 the learnings there, I mean, I like numbers and I love the analytical side of things, but it was that that wasn't where I was going to spend my life. Although I just want to caveat that because now I work with a lot of financial people and, um, you know, had I continued with that and pursued it, I probably would have gone into private equity and, 
and you know i think that 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 space can be you know as rewarding kind of intellectually conceptually and creatively as it as it is analytical so anyway yeah. that but really basically when i did that i was like i'm getting the fuck out of here i don't want to do this anymore so uh and and i went to graduate school and started working in media and 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 really media and digital media is my first love for sure i love all i love all the pieces of it i love the systems i love you know media i'm very passionate about media i like the technology piece um you know uh, it, it, when i found that i was like I, this is kind of what i want to do yeah i'm interested to get your take i mean i you know my kind of background in undergrad was in you know econ and finance as well and i always thought that i would go to business school and kind of learned another craft and it seemed like you know that was on the shelf for 10 or 15 years but now it's a an asset because you kind of combine the thing you're passionate about with you know, core understanding of, you know, business models and finance and, um, yeah, I find that to be an advantage. You feel yeah, the I think it really is an advantage, especially if you want to, you know, if you're, if you're looking at buying companies or investing in companies and you want to understand the mechanics and the business models underneath it. Like just before we got on, I was, you know, I mean, it's fun to pull out a, there's a, there's a real poetry to a good spreadsheet, right? And if you, you know, if you want to understand how kind of a system works in this case, I've been thinking a lot lately about the economics of media and how much kind of loss is in the middle, right? And I always marveled that, that uh, I think this is a, a good departure, a little bit of a good departure. Anyway, I always marveled that, you know, if you look at a kind of a digital media company, particularly a scaled one, uh, how much of the business is dedicated to just operating and selling, whether that's platform operations, sales, marketing, ad ops, audience development, finance, back office, all that stuff, right? And so, you know, if, if the pie is 100%, you know, maybe 30, 35% goes to the content creator. And the rest of it's just making the business work. And then if you look over on the other side of what it takes for someone to put advertising into that model, right? But from the dollar that, you know, a client says, I got a marketing problem and they're earmarking that to put it in, to put it to work. Then you've got like this immense sort of creative and media buying infrastructure that is, you know, the agency world. So when you think about how much money from that place, I mean, and not to mention the ad tech piece in the middle. So you got agency infrastructure, ad tech, and then kind of media operating infrastructure, how much of it goes down to the creator. It's not unlike the record business where like they say, you know, roughly 10 to 12% goes from the, you know, dollar spent by the consumer back to the, back to the artist. And, and I'm really interested in kind of like how that changes and how more money goes. Because if you, if you want to create a media company now, um, I'm really into this idea of the, the lean media company and um, how you would find a mechanism to put more and more back into the creator. Because I think it's a time when the best talent wins. And so you want to, you want to pay for that. And, and, and that's just, you know, I mean, an example of how you take love of media, understanding of systems and numbers, and you start to kind of put them together. Do you think, is there a spot, obviously, you know, a solo shop now you can go on a Substack or another platform, you know, they obviously have their fees. Is there a point where the, you know, 10, 15, 20 people where you become an actual media company, maybe you start to in-house some of those things. And then that creates this uh kind of admin you know sales infrastructure or is there a sweet spot where you can how big could you get without having to to 
add that infrastructure? It's a, it's a great it's a great question, Michael, because I talk to a lot of these guys. I'm not doing that just for the record. I'm I'm just kind yeah. of dabbling doing other stuff. But um, you talk to a guy like Brian Morrissey or you know Dan Runcy who runs this thing called Trapital, um, and you know they're kind of one man bands that do you know sales, marketing, and content creation, and 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 kind of augment their personal efforts with other folks a little bit where, where they need it. Um, you know, you've got kind of that situation and I, th- I think you can make a good living there. And I think you can make, uh, you, obviously you don't benefit from the leverage of, you know, taking a piece of a lot of people. Um, but, but what's happening in that market is g- their lists are so insanely valuable, the good ones anyways. Right. So uh, that, that, you know, the maturation of content marketing combined with, you know, quality expert writing combined with great lists means that effectively their CPMs are through the roof. And so you can charge a whole lot for a kind of personalized insertion inside of that media product to a very high value list and you can make good money. You can also say that, you know, there's an evolution of that model, which would be like, call it like the puck model or something like that, where you aggregate really, really good talent, make them stakeholders in the business and don't burden them with all that junk and just get them to work their beats hard and, uh, and then wrap a brand around it that, but the brand is really, you know, it's kind of the, the, the personal brands make the media brand, if that makes any sense, as opposed to the media brand making the personal brands. And, you know, that's also much. So I think we're at a time now where we just assume that you have all this infrastructure and a media brand, and then we collect journalists underneath of it. And <clears throat> I think we're at a time when that's being redefined. Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, even you know, going from writing to, you know, podcast or video, you know, I, I started to study a lot of these, you know, the Scott Galloways and other people that have actually started to set up teams around them. You know, they get to an eight to nine person group. And you know, it's interesting to look at what share of those people are actually on the content, whether it's production or, um, you know, research or copywriting versus, you know, actually running the business. Um, yeah. yeah, I find that interesting. That is interesting. Scott's a good example, actually, because... You know, he probably does have, as you suggest, I have no idea, but maybe six or eight people and definitely not seven. Uh, but uh, um, he, you know, you can you can see it that his, you know, his little kind of personal media empire has expanded in frequency, quality, depth and media type. So he's got someone you can tell. I mean, there's someone doing the research and, um, you know, I, 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 I think. I would put that, however, in the bucket of making the content better, as opposed to what used to happen in digital media, where you'd have like a salesperson, every salesperson, you probably had two to three support people, right? You had uh, marketing that did all the packaging. And remember, you're winning probably somewhere between 10 and 20% of the stuff you pitch. So you're, you're, you're packaging up endless number of decks, concepts, you know, you know, grids, what we call grids, which is sort of how you put all your ad products together. And then you've got, you know, so you got your, your marketing folks, you've got your account management folks that take the deal once it happens. And you got, you got the studio, which is making the content, right? And then you've got ad ops and then everything around it. So my, my point there is this, there's a lot of high carb headcount against every content creator, tons. And, you know, I, I think there's a better way. 
Well, I guess overall, you know, kind of leads to my next question on running a content business. You know, what are the, we've kind of covered a couple of these, but what are the major changes in recent years? You know, kind of what are advantages of the current environment versus what it would have been maybe 10 years ago? And kind of what are the core disadvantages? Well, um, so the, the thing that a person like me likes about media business is it's really multidimensional, right? And it's good for kind of left, right brain people. So, you know, it, like we said, that it, it encompasses the, you know, in some cases, a written word, video, uh, investment platforms, advertising, all that stuff. So, um, and, and it never really, it ultimately doesn't seem to ever get much simpler. I mean, you can simplify it for sure, but right now we're dealing with the next complexity, which is the blockchain and, and, you know, what that means to IP, what that means to things like micropayments, what that means to how you think about even overall organization design. I think one of the, the most profound things that we'll see, and it'll take a while, um, moving forward is that um concepts like DAOs are really powerful and really you know a DAO in some ways is i mean listen you've seen the uh kind of tug of war between uh you know content creators looking for power and representation inside of media companies with the union movement and 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 you know on some level that's understandable uh you know management generally doesn't like that type of structure because in some ways it gets in it gets in the way of running a really nimble kind of connected media entity at a time of deep change because you have to negotiate in a kind of formal structure with another entity that's the concern less than the money right and um uh sorry more than the money but um you know i think you're seeing these new organizational designs that are not hierarchical where more people have representation, where more people share in the cap structure of the organization. I think that's really interesting. And, and so I, I think that the next generation of leaders are, are gonna be faced with a lot of really interesting decisions about organization design. Um, and, 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 I, and, and I think uh, a lot of innovation will come out of that. Um, you know, I, 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 one other point I would just make is I think we've come through a time when advantage went to the kind of system builders and hackers where people that knew how to sort of harness technology and uh, uh, kind of grow audience against a system that was dominated by Google and Facebook. Like it, there's a lot of kind of, you know, mechanical hacking to make that work. And it, 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 it kind of advantaged a certain mindset and type of people. And I think that, we're, we're moving into a time where advantage goes to finding the best content creators and creating a structure that works for them. And so it's, it's more about good content now than it is about managing, uh, you know, the infrastructure and the system. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, you know, when I look at our newsletter numbers every week and kind of always blown away by how many people consistently read every week. Right. And that, um, that for us is such a high leverage production versus, you know, the five, 10 years ago, how much you would have spent time to go speak to a room of 200 people, you know, and you can get 10 plus times that every week to read, read your content. And, you know, thinking back to a you know, thousand true fans by yeah you know Kevin Kelly, I think that world's really 
kind of hitting now where you can a make a living on it and just you don't need to necessarily have a diluted message to you know three million people it's about really finding yeah and i and i i made this point a couple times in the last couple weeks and i i I, it's you know a little obsession of mine right now i think one of the things that you do really well is format and i think that that the format that you've created not only makes it easier to kind of assemble your point of view every week but it gives it creates an expectation with the audience where it's like i'm going to read that and i know i'm going to get a quick hit and it's going to make me smarter and it's kind of not a lot of work and that that's kind of bugging me right now to be honest with you because my newsletter is a lot of work not for me personally it is work for me but it's kind of a joy it's work for the reader it's like when you read strategery it's like a fucking pain in the ass it's it's it meaning like it's just like it's not that it's not great. It's just intellectually dense. And, you know, you got to kind of like work your way through it. It's like going to school. And I can't read know. that one on the phone. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Anyway, format's important. I think format's very important. Yeah, I'm interested. So, you know, kind of preparing for this, I was thinking back, you know, I think I met you about a, you know, 10 or 11 years ago in the, the same media days. And one thing I've been struck recently is, I mean, there were, obviously a ton of innovations there, but you know, two that have struck out that I think are hitting today, much like the thousand true fans, you know, one, the cost per engagement pricing on media, right. And the fact that, um, it was at CPX, right. Was that the, the format you guys had or, uh, the thing that I made there was called CPE. CPE and I wanted something right, different right. and I was probably Michael too naive to think, or I was naive enough to think that I could challenge the industry by changing a pricing mechanism. It was a pricing mechanism and a marketing and a kind of a bit of a marketing pull. I remember one of the great achievements in marketing at, 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 at what was video egg, which ultimately became same media was we animated this short video where it said CPM and this, we had this little character, this bird that kind of walked over and foisted the M up onto its side. So it was an E, CP, get it? And yeah, I mean, the idea there was that we could, if we, what we wanted was to put pressure on ourselves to optimize on behalf of advertisers. We felt like attention and engagement was an important metric, that it could sit alongside other performance constructs like cost per click or cost per acquisition that we wanted to optimize for attention that that if we started selling that way it would put pressure on our technology people on our product people on everybody in the company to get extremely good at that to seek out that kind of inventory to build ad products that supported that etc so yeah we did the cpe thing but that company was you know a a real you know i had i i I look back with very fond memories um, of those those years um, for lots of reasons. One is the most important is, you know, the great people, many of whom I'm, I'm still connected to guys like, you know, Matt Sanchez, who, who I work with for a long time, but just special, special people. And, um, but, uh, you know, we, we were idealists and, 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 and it was the business was just in some ways too ambitious and too complicated and fed with too much venture capital. And so it was really three businesses, right? It was a business that was a very innovative ad network 
that was focused on innovation and format and pricing. Uh, and it did pioneering things in app advertising and video advertising. We, you know, that's that overlay that, that sits on, you know, YouTube videos. Like we did that. We invented that. And, you know, I remember going down the street to YouTube and saying, and they were sort of like, you know, like exploding as a, as a distribution platform. And I forget who I was talking to, the person in charge of ad products, like name is escaping me. Uh, and I was like, you should do this. We should do it together. We should make it a format. And, you know, now I look at it and I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe I did that. Cause I, I mean, it annoys me as a user, but anyway, um, I called it the ticker at the time. It was kind of like a lower third and we experimented putting it in different ways in the top of the video and the bottom of the video and all that. But we did a bunch of other stuff. We built a big publishing platform. We bought media properties. We chafed at the notion that the internet was in any way close to being done in terms of the meshing of content and ad experience. <clears throat> we did things like we had the clean campaign. We thought that that the the that basically you know media pages on the internet were a cluttered mess, and that if we could simplify them and create higher yielding ads, we could create a better kind of ecosystem for everyone. More yield on one hand, a better experience for for the consumer, and a better experience for advertisers. And at the time, we were we were really interested in passion driven media. Whether that was, you know, remodelista or gardenista, there were certain points of view on home and, and, and living, so service categories. Whether it was like Dogster uh, that was focused on, you know, what, what life was like having a pet was kind of community oriented. We did tech stuff. We, you know, we were, you know, we did really interesting uh, kind of lifestyle categories with like with Jane Pratt, XO Jane. And um, anyway, I, I was very, very proud of it. But we were competing on, you know, multiple fronts. We were competing with ad networks. We were competing with publishers. We were competing with people providing platform in the middle. And, um, you know, I think it was, you know, we probably just should have focused on building a really killer engagement ad network. We would have made a lot more money. Yeah, well, I mean, definitely a one of the kind of best companies, you know, I've enjoyed working with. And I think your events really taught me that, a, you had a, a point of view, and B, you went the extra mile to communicate it and package it to the user. And I think back to newsletters today, I often think back, you know, anytime I'd go to any of your events, I would always walk away with just tremendous amount of value beyond what I put into it, you know, and that was really yeah, one we the did extra some mile nice, to, nice events. Did you come to that Napa event that we did? Oh, yeah. Yeah, Napa, and I think one in Carmel. Those were, yeah. Yeah, those, those were are insane. Yeah, they were great. They were fun. They were, we brought, we had guys like, remember we bought Jared Lanyard in, that guy with all the yep. dreads that does all the kind of, uh, which metaverse. now you start talking about artificial intelligence, I think back to that, yeah. Yeah. that talk. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's interesting because, you know, our core business is looking at all video advertising. We're only really focused on video. And one of the top things that we see today is once you start to standardize your metrics, there's a massive mispricing of inventory, right? And seller A to seller B, that either the buyer doesn't understand the difference. Obviously, they, they have some bias, but a common thing from our team is why, um, you know, why is this thing eighty dollars and things twenty dollars when the quality content and everything's relatively the same? And I feel like I could give them your deck from like 2011, 2012 on the CPE, and and that that argument just hitting really today. I feel in our space. 
Yeah, and the other one is that, you know, I, I wrote about this too a while ago, and it was being, as one usually is in writing a newsletter, is you can be hyperbolic in an effort to kind of make a point. But, you know, I think that the measure of media performance from, you know, by impression is slowly losing importance. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you'll still see on one end kind of, you know, top of funnel brand related associative sponsorship type pricing. Right. And that's kind of what I was alluding to when someone, you know, elects to advertise on a very premium newsletter with content marketing, you're paying, you know, very, very high CPMs for the association and the, and the, the kind of intimacy of that medium. Um, <clears throat> but, uh, and I think the same applies to TV, but the, the other one is, Impression-based stuff at the lower end of the funnel has essentially become a GMV-based measure. So, you know, it it really is about, particularly as all the pieces are connected and you can track, you know, a visitor from from impression to transaction, it really is a percentage of GMV. It's a GMV measure like affiliate is. What would would a say media look like today? Hmm. You know, I uh, I think about that a lot lately, to be honest with you, and and, and I'll I'll just tell you what I'm thinking about it. It it has to do with this lean media concept, and it has to do with um, the media type of blogs being in some ways revisited today with creators, <clears throat> and and I think the pioneering. I would just give credit to the pioneering firm of that time, which was Federated Media. Uh, John Battelle's company and Chaz Edwards and all the people that worked on that. But they, you know, they found really extraordinary emerging voices that were empowered by a new media type and an accessible platform. And they turned that into an ad offering, essentially. So they had all the best stuff, right? Like they had Deuce and Arrington and all, you know, they had like the best emerging media properties. Now, the challenge at the time was they aspired to be all the things in some ways that Say was, which was, you know, we'll be your platform and we'll be your ad sales organization and we'll help you develop partnerships. And, you know, it almost went as far in some cases that like we'll provide, you know, healthcare and dental coverage and all that kind of stuff to your employees or to you and, you know, whoever you put in there. Now, the, the problem with that was is that their best customers or their best media outlets grew up and didn't want them anymore. So Arrington, you know, said, you know, I'm going to hire journalists and raise money and get a CEO and become a media brand and hire salespeople. And we don't need you. And you're taking too much of the every ad dollar that comes in. So to have a business where your, you know, your best asset is aching to leave is kind of, not is is a misalignment of incentive somehow. So, um, you know, one of the things that that we did that was very, you know, at the time, everybody in media wanted to find advantage in platform, Michael. So, you know, when you had this system where you were so painfully dependent on, you know, a couple of distribution paths, in particular Facebook, which was you know, uh, an unreliable friend 
and, and Google, which then kind of became really the majority of distribution for, for most of that category of content, right? Um, you, wanted, you wanted to find advantage in any way you could. And bringing everything together in a platform, in a page type, in, in a structure, in technology where you had, you know, all your data sources were lined up and you had one ad stack and you had one publishing system that you could optimize. The thesis was, I think, not that wrong, was that was an important part of, you know, differentiating and finding a permanent position for these media brands in that world. And um, now, but what it did take, just to get to the point, what it did take is tons and tons of money and resources. Like you had, you know, like a hundred people developing it. And it took a really long time. So now what I'm interested in, if you were to ask, if just to kind of get back to the original question, which is what's the future, I'm interested in what collection of service, how do you put the best creators together with an offering in the center that allows the most money to go back to them and at the same time helps them do the things they don't want to do or that is that are preventing them from kind of getting to the next level. So that's the same media of the future to me, which is kind of leverage other people's platform, create a brand around the finest, you know, kind of contributors across mediums and uh, help them be more successful in advertising subscriptions and anything related to the blockchain. That's kind of what I, what I think is interesting now. And, and just remember the, 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 the kind of, you know, you know, atomic unit of that world is that individual and the best of them, the best of them really are important nodes in the kind of, you know, cultural landscape in terms of their ability to influence opinion and, 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 and serve uh, uh, the reader. I, I personally have found that um, newsletters from people that I like and respect have a level of, particularly from experts, not journalists. I mean, some of them are journalists and some are journalists slash experts and some are just experts, um, provide me with really delightful content experiences that I value a whole lot. And I find that interesting. Yeah, I thought it's just totally changed too. what my, you know, the someone I read a newsletter on that's you know, like an expert you know, if they come out with a video or they come out with any other piece of content or they're reposting with somebody else, that's also the first thing that I watch. You know, it's, yeah. it's like a decisioning process for me because I've got, you know, obviously like everybody else, a thousand times more content than I can watch, but I'm, I'm almost locked in because I just place such a high value on, on their content to begin with. Yeah. Yeah. We probably have similar media care, media consumption yeah. behaviors. What do you think? I mean, so kind of back to your earlier point, I know you publish on Substack. Do uh, do they offer that dynamic today or, or are these people going to get too big? Are they going to have the Arrington problem where, you know, they start their own brand? Some will. I suspect some will. I mean, you, it looks like, you know, someone like Brian's on that path, right? So he's got, you know, he's guarding, you know, he's, he's leaning into his brand called the rebooting and you could see him adding resources underneath a bit. Um, but, like I said, I think there's a continuum and it's like the Scott thing that you said, right? There's individuals that that's what they want. There's people that want a collective effectively and some people that will pursue the media brand path. So I, I think you, you'll, you'll get a mix. 
I mean, the difference now is there's a bunch of differences, but um, first of all, subs didn't exist back then, right? So now you can be a high-end creator and have, you know, several hundred thousand dollars in subscriptions and be independent and have a good life. You know, that's a, that's a good, good situation that never really existed. Um, things like Substack and the ability to quickly spin up, you know, a newsletter, gated if you want to, you know, have it, have it published to the web, you know, all, all, all that stuff never existed. Now, what's interesting is there's always the, the tendency to, for companies like Substack to try to f- kind of find their own economic power or their own distribution mm-hmm. power. And you're seeing that right now. So they're, they're, they're working on making their ecosystem stronger as an independent ecosystem. And I think it's really something to watch because last week they released an app and that app basically, you know, rolls together all your subscriptions in one delightful little package. Now just think about what's going on there. The app previously was my email box. And, you know, so, so, so the newsletters I got, you know, I sort of prioritize my own way with everything else that I'm doing, both personal communication with media. And those are the decisions I make about how to filter and package and sort and all that. Now they're saying, well, we're the, we're, when you own the app and you own the environment, you're the curator. And then you start getting into all these complexities around how as a media creator, you kind of jack your way into that system. Like, how come they're not promoting me? And, mm. You know, how do I get to, and, and they, they did one other thing. Actually, just yesterday, I noticed they're encouraging writers in the interface to promote their, like they're giving you slugs to promote your favorite other Substack writers in your email newsletter. So they're, they're starting to build a little recirculation economy inside of it. And, you know, in some ways, Substack today is no different than Medium. They're, I mean, I would say that they're, you know, they're the biggest challenge in some ways to Ev and Medium that 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 you see see out there because, you know, same idea. It's for writers. Um, it's obviously email centric. It's really easy to do subscriptions. The subscriptions aren't up to Medium; they're up to the individuals. It's now an app. You know, so it's a collection of thoughts and writers inside of an app. It's no different than Medium and. Uh, uh, I, I, I think they have to be very careful that they, the nice thing about it today is you can take your list and walk. Mm-hmm. And if you don't like the rules, it's not that hard like to leave. And, and, and I think that's the nice thing about having a list that list. It's freedom. You know, the relationship is between you and your list. And the technology is important, but it's not going to get in the way. It's just an email. Yeah, it seems to me like a red line. If they tried to obfuscate the the list to the, you know, you sign up through the Substack app, but you don't actually show up to the user. That was always a problem with Medium that you just couldn't rhyme a reason. You know, you could tell when you hit their distribution algorithm, but you didn't really have any ability to take those people with you. I think there's a difference, by the way, between paid and free. Because if Substack is the infrastructure, you know, is the subscription infrastructure and you rely on that to shift that somewhere else means that you have to, I suppose, re-authenticate a credit card with somebody. Mm-hmm. And in that process, you'd be sort of, you know, pretty concerned that you'd, you'd lose a bunch of subs. And when that's how you're putting food on the table, you know, you'd be very careful about it. But, you know, more or less, it's portable. Definitely. Yeah. 
Troy and I touched on quite a few interesting topics today and still have more to share. Join us next week for part two of my conversation with Troy Young. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Screen Wars. I hope you enjoyed the discussion. You can find out more about Cross Screen Media at crossscreenmedia.com. Please don't forget to sign up for our weekly newsletter, State of the Screens. You can find us on social media at Cross Screen Media. Join us next time for more insights and analysis straight from the experts.